Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on chemical dependency. Okay, so we will get started with our next lecture. Um, again, I'm Sachin Kale. This is um, Best Practices for Opiate Prescribing, um, part, part one of a two-part series. And what I'd like you to kind of hopefully get out of this lecture is by the end of it, be able to describe a universal precautions approach to prescribing opioids, to utilize an opioid agreement in palliative care, um, to assess um, the utility of opioid risk assessment tools, and to um, interpret a urine drug screen. This is Ms. Kay again. Just a reminder, she's a, 31, a 37-year-old bipolar and stage 4 breast cancer. Um, in terms of social history, she endorses smoking marijuana, lives um, with five roommates, and she was unable to um, account for her oxycodone pills when asked. And we're going to talk about some of the universal precautions we could use in a case like this to help um, mitigate any issue, any concerns about diversion and, and, and abuse. Case two um, is a new case. Mr. Carson, 63-year-old with multiple myeloma. Um, he is taking 30 milligrams of um, morphine uh, slow release every 12 hours and 15 milligrams of morphine IR before hours is needed. You've been following for five months and decide now's a good time to get urine drug screen. You've been hearing about it. Let's just give it a shot, see what happens. It's positive. The urine drug screen amino assay is positive for opiate and cocaine. And his um, GCMS is positive for morphine, codeine, and cocaine. So we're going to talk about what this means. Um, but also just think about, so this is a guy with cancer-associated pain, right? Um, what does it mean to get a urine drug screen on someone who you feel has a legitimate source of pain and who needs opioids? And if you get a urine drug screen on someone and it doesn't come back what you expect it to, what do you do then? It's a gray area. I mean, it's worth, it's worth thinking about. There's no really great answer. I think it's easier um, if someone has a non-malignant pain than if they have um, the kind of population we deal with. He also tells you that cocaine helps him cope with his illness. And he has never heard of codeine. And so he flatly denies ever taking codeine. And uh, he's upset that he had to give a urine sample in the first place and feels like this was just put upon him all of a sudden and is quite upset. This is probably not an unfamiliar case. And um, we'll talk about, about how, to, how to handle it. The question, the struggle we're really going to deal with right now is just how do we manage um, the risk of opioid prescribing in a palliative population? The fact of the matter is there's little data about best practices for opioid management specific for our population. The data comes from non-malignant chronic pain. And this universal precautions approach specifically comes from the world of non-malignant chronic pain. And the idea is um, that all patients um, should have an opioid agreement, which we'll talk about, a risk assessment, and we should access the, the physician drug monitoring program, which, um, which we talked about in the last, the last lecture. Um, and in, under this, this vision, all patients should be seen as potentially having the risk for misuse. 
And um, additional screening, additional um, monitoring is based then on risk and behaviors. And th this can include adjusting the frequency of visits, adjusting the pills dispensed, short altering between or deciding how to prescribe short-acting versus long-acting opioids, um, initiating adjuvant therapies, which um, we'll talk about not this lecture, but in general, that should also be something that's, that should be something that's always considered. Uh, urine drug screen and pill counts. So let's talk about the elements of an opioid agreement first of all. So what can someone tell me what, what an opioid agreement or a treatment agreement is? Also called a pain contract or an opioid contract. What's the purpose of it? Yeah. It's to lay out the expectations of the clinic, what the patient will do, what the prescriber will do, and what are the ground rules for continued use. Right, so lay out expectations both on the patient side and the, and the prescriber side, and lay out some ground rules. Are there any downsides of using an opiate agreement? They at times can feel one-sided. They at times can feel one-sided, how so? Uh, you do this or else? You do this or else. Right. Right. Good. So it, exactly. So it outlines physician responsibilities. It informs a patient of risk of opioid tolerance or physical dependence. So it is meant to also be an educational, an educational, um, have a, an educational utility also for the patients. It often requires, um, and it states that um, there will be one prescriber and one pharmacy. Though we do see that, you know, in our practice, we, we can be lenient with the pharmacy depending on the situation. For example, if the pharmacy doesn't stock the opioids that are needed. It usually um, lays the ground rules. Stolen or lost prescriptions won't be replaced. Must use opioids as directed. And it also outlines assessment of compliance, either pill counts, urine drug screens. So these are kind of the general elements of an opioid agreement. There are some controversies regarding these opioid agreements, however. One is that this patient you're seeing is in pain, right? They have, they have cancer, they have cancer-related pain, they have met, um, metastatic disease. And now they're in pain, they come to you for pain relief and you're, you're giving them a contract that they really don't have any choice but to sign. So there's an element of coercion in that. Violations of the opioid contracts can occur for reasons other than misuse or diversion. Maybe someone legitimately lost their pills. Maybe their pills were legitimately stolen. Maybe they were taking more pills, more opioids, than prescribed, not because they were abusing it, but because they were having more pain. In terms of the, the urine drug screen, there's also limited evidence on how, how effective the urine drug screen is. In um, in reducing opioid abuse and diversion. Also, there's no guidelines on how often a urine drug screen should be, should be done. Do you do it first visit and every visit? Do you do the first visit and when suspicious? If it's first visit and suspicious, what raises your suspicions? Is there an element that prejudice can come to play with that as well? And again, th there's not been enough studies on, on any of this stuff, on any of these elements in our population. This comes from the chronic non-malignant pain world. 
The next part of a universal assessment is a screening test. And again, these tests have all been validated in non-palliative populations. And they are, these are kind of the most common ones. The opioid risk tool is one um, that's been studied a lot in, in palliative clinics. Not validated, but it's been used a lot. Um, it's nice because it's a five-item questionnaire. Can be completed by patients and asked by the family history also, which is helpful, especially when thinking about issues of diversion and things like that. Other common ones are the screener and opioid assessment for patients with pain or SOAP. This can be a 5, 14, or 24 item questionnaire. Um, and, and three other ones that are used less frequently are pain assessment and documentation tool, assesses four domains, completed by physicians. That's tough, right? Because physicians, we don't really want to complete more questionnaires ourselves. We'd rather have the patient do it than us do it. Um, scoring system to predict outcome, dire, assesses four domains. Diagnosis, intractability, risk, and efficacy completed by physicians. And then current opioid misuse measure is a 17-item questionnaire completed by patients. So these are the ones that are most commonly used. Um, the ORT and the SOAP are, are kind of probably the two most common of these. So let's talk about the opioid risk um, assessment tool, the opioid risk tool. Um, in the intended setting is primary care. Um, and it's, it's used to... Um, Evaluate the risk of aberrant behaviors in patients prescribed opioid for chronic pain. That's where it was, the population was validated in. And it needs to be done with a clinical assessment. And I know you can't, uh, might not be able to read this, but um, a scoring of a 0 to 3 is considered low risk, 4 to 7 is considered moderate risk, and 7, greater than 7 is considered high risk. And you can see it's a pretty short, it's a pretty short questionnaire. It can be pretty easily filled out by patients. Um, and it assesses different points. Um, it talks about family history, which is really nice. It talks about personal history of substance abuse, age, um, adolescent, history of pre-adolescent sexual abuse, which was something that was found to be uh, predictive in, in this model, and psychologic disease. And so we think about Ms. K, our first example, we think about the fact that um, personal history, um, you know, marijuana is considered, you know, it's still an illegal drug, so it, it, you, you get points for that. So. She'd have four points for that. Her age range is a risk factor. So that's one, that's five. And then she also had a history of uh, bipolar, so that's two, so that's seven. So you're already kind of in a, she's kind of in a moderate high risk just based on that itself, if you were using this. Why is male zero for pre-adolescent? I don't know. That's strange. It's, 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 yeah, that. yeah. So like I said, the, the ORT hasn't been validated as such in a palliative population, but it, it is being used pretty often. There are some studies that have been kind of coming out with it. So um, this is out of the University of um, Virginia, um, use ORT in one academic palliative clinic. Um, in the patient, they, they, looked, they looked back on a retrospective study of all their patients who received ORTs within one month. And they found that 43 of the patients that they saw, 43% were medium to high risk based on, based on this. And um, so that's pretty high, right? You think about, you know, and these, these are the referrals that, that, um, that palliative clinics are getting. 43% already score medium to high. And then 40% of the patients in general had a urine drug screen and it was abnormal in 45%, with marijuana being the most common, common one. 
And it's something to think about how we treat, you know, what do we do with an abnormal urine drug screen when the only abnormality is marijuana? Um, it's another issue that there's not clear guidelines on. You'll probably see physicians, some will ignore it, say that marijuana is okay, some might not, and... and don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't tell. Um, how about in Ohio? So I'm sure we all are familiar with, with ORS, which stand for Ohio, I'm sorry, so we're, we're going to uh, the, the, um, the PDMPs now. Um, so um, in terms of physician drug monitoring program, in Ohio, we have the Ohio Automated um, Prescription Reporting System, ORS, and it was started um, January 2015, and as of January 2015, prescribers of opioids or benzodiazepines much, must register for an ORS, and especially by the time they renew their, their medical license, they'll have to be registered if they prescribe opioids or benzodiazepines. Now there's some exceptions, but this is generally the rule. So in Ohio, what are our requirements here? So we're required to, uh, to, um, to look at an ORS report going back 12 months before initially prescribing an opioid or a benzodiazepine. We must repeat it at least every 90 days for those who are chronically prescribed uh, benzodiazepines or opioids and it must be documented in the patient record. And you don't have to actually um, <coughs> copy and paste the ORS report into your patient record, but you have to say that you've looked at it and there were no abnormalities or there were abnormalities. There are some exceptions. So hospice patients or, or patients otherwise considered terminally ill uh, have an exception to this. If you're prescribing an opioid for less than seven days, you don't have to, you don't have to refer to an ORS and uh, prescribed for cancer-related symptoms or prescribed within a hospital, a nursing home or residential facility. So if you're inpatient and you're prescribing you know, five oxycodone every four hours for your inpatient, you don't, have to, you don't have to actually check the ORS for that. Though if you're prescribing it on discharge um, for a patient who doesn't have cancer, um, you would have to. Now, we talk about best, this is, these are the requirements. We talk about best practices um, we, we find that we, we definitely use the ORS report much more often than, than, than that, especially you know, in my practice, I, and at Ohio State, um, I can speak for, we, we consult the ORS report basically for any patient that comes in, comes in. Because it has, even though the ORS was meant for um, kind of reduced doctor shopping, it also really helps us to kind of validate or confirm when, when a prescription was filled and what the script was. So it has a lot of good benefits in that sense also. Oh, I'm sorry, and then the other exception is acute surgical or procedural pain. Um, so, kind of the, the, the last part of this talk, I want to talk about drug testing and palliative care. Um, so let's talk about what are the benefits, what are the benefits of drug screening in the palliative population? It might seem obvious, but what, do you, what are some of the benefits? Check for diversion. You check for diversion, yep. It protects your patient. It protects your patient, how so? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if for them, if they're truly taking the medication that takes any risk, they doubt out of your mind that, they, they're, that they're using the medication. Yeah. What are some of the drawbacks? If you have somebody with cancer-related pain and they come back positive for a non-prescribed um, medication, it puts you in conundrum. Yeah. These are patients, you know, that's a good point. So that, these, are, these are patients who need 
opioids. Presumably that's why you're prescribing opioids for them, especially if it's, even if it's cancer-related. Let's assume for any of the patients you're going to prescribe opioids for, you feel that there's a, a real need for it. If they then come back with, a, with, a, with an abnormality, how do you respond to it? And how do you be consistent from patient to patient, right? To make sure you're providing kind of just and equitable care for all your patients. These are kind of things you need to think about kind of ahead of time and make sure you, you incorporate with your practice. You know, if you're going to be someone who, who doesn't prescribe opioids for someone who has meth, uh, uh, marijuana in their urine, you want to make sure you're consistent throughout. So in terms of methods of drug testing, in general, there's several methods of how you can drug test. Blood, saliva, urine, sweat, hair, nails. Blood and saliva usually um, last for a couple of hours. The drug can last for a couple of hours. Urine can last for a couple of days. And hair and nails can be for years. Um, urine drug screens are what we typically use because they're easy to collect. And like I said, they, they can um, tend to last for days to weeks. And then there are two forms of a two tests you run on a urine drug screen. There's the immunoassay, and then there's a, a gas chromatography mass spec. Just before we get into this, just to for make sure we're clear with uh, with our definitions. So, an opiate is a historical term restricted to naturally occurring alkaloids derived from opium. So, we're talking morphine and codeine is what we, what we know, we're more familiar with. And an opioid is a more current term that includes opiates and synthetic and semi-synthetic agents. So, your, your fentanyl, your methadone, um, and then for your semi-synthetic, your oxycodone. Your immunoassay. So, immunoassay, what it does is it detects, um, antibodies detect the presence of specific drugs or metabolites. Um, and basically, the, the, your, the um, antibodies are tagged, and they, com they compete with whatever might be found in the urine. So the more the drug that's in the urine, the more that will compete with um, the, the antigen antibody uh, will form, and less of the tagged antibodies will, will actually appear in, in the urine drug screen. So the more of the tagged um, antibodies that appear, that means that actually there is less of the, the drug in, in the urine drug screen. Now the benefit um, of this is that it's large-scale screening through automation, automation and rapid detection. Right? It's easy to do, it's fast, it's relatively cheap. The downside is there's a higher chance of false positives requiring confirmatory tests. Generally, urine drug screens can be used in place of employment and, and, and similar circumstances, and there's five things that are tested for. Cocaine, amphetamine, opiate, marijuana, and benzodiazepines. And then you have your GC mass spec. This is a gold standard of confirmatory testing. It can detect small quantities and confirm the presence of a specific drug, which is the, the strong positive. On the downside, it's time consuming, it's costly, and may provide false negative depending on the laboratory cutoffs. This is really important. So, so la different laboratories have different cutoffs of what they consider to be a positive or negative result. And so you get an unexpected negative result it may be just that the, that particular laboratory you're using, the cutoff is, is higher than another, another laboratory. So you have to call them and confirm. So this is, um, you can refer to um, your, um, your, your two handouts. One handout shows the, um, the actual um, metabolism of opiates and opioids. And then um, the other one is the urinary analytes found um, urine drug screen. So, 
these are the these are the the main opioids we look look at, and then these are the u u urinary analytes you'll find in your in your urine drug screen. What I want to kind of uh, highlight here is morphine. Um, codeine can can be seen in in a um, urine drug screen if someone's taking morphine as a potential um, impurity in the manufacturing process. Um, same with hydrocodone and oxycodone. And um, and then for heroin, there's six um, monoacetylmorphine um, is only found in in uh, a urinary analyte for someone who's taking heroin. So that's a, that's a kind of a telltale sign if you see someone t using heroin. Um, in terms of it, amino assays, another thing to, th to realize is that the um, Semi urinary the amino assays really detect opiates the best. So again, your 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 semi synthetic and your synthetic might not show up in a urinary an analyte. At Ohio State, um, our amino assays automatically check for oxycodone and methadone, but don't necessarily check for fentanyl unless um, we specifically ask for it. Um, this is your last um, handout I gave you, which is the length of time drugs of abuse can be detected in the urine. So alcohol is pretty short, so you know, that's why we don't typically look for alcohol um, or discuss checking for alcohol in, in the urine drug screen of someone. Um, marijuana can, can depend on um, chronicity of use. Um, it can be, um, well, single use can be up to seven days, um, usually closer to three days. Um, and chronic use can last for, for a month or more. Morphine is 48 to 72 hours, oxycodone can be two to four days, lasts a little bit longer. This is really important too. Our patients are often on a lot of different medications as well, and there's always concern for um, getting a false positive, which can show up in an amino assay. Um, and, and so, and particularly when we look at the amphetamines, bupropion, um, Clopromazine, Desipramine, Promethazine, these are medicines we're often using in our, in our patient population. Um, sertraline um, and, um, and, and for marijuana, Drudabinol, and PPIs. So these, this is another reason, so your amino acids can come up with false positives, and so you need to do a confirmatory test with GC mass spec if something, if something comes up. All right, so we're going to finish up with a few practice questions to see, um, to kind of practice, practice this out. So you can use your handouts for this as well. So um, this is, this is our, our case. So a 60-year-old man with multiple myeloma recently moved to Columbus. Prior, uh, his prior physician prescribed 30 milligrams of morphine, which he took every four hours around the clock. And he took it about, so he took it about five times per day. Now, um, let's say his outpatient records have been requested, but he'll run out of morphine in three days, so he decided to assume his, his opioid management right then and there and, and request outside records. Now, consistent with a universal precautions approach, what are your next steps? So a patient comes to you from clinic. He's a new, he's a new patient for you. He's on opioids. He has um, multiple myeloma. He has a clear cause for why he's having his pain. And um, you're going to get outside records, but he's going to run out of his medications in a few days. So what are some of the steps you'd like to do in terms of thinking about a universal precautions approach?
to check an ORS. And what will, what will you get out of that ORS report? So you'll be able to see what he was actually prescribed, when he was prescribed it. Mm -hmm. like moved in from Missouri. Well, you were from Missouri, I'm out of luck. But right. But if he's from Ohio, right. No. And this is a made-up example, so that's, it doesn't matter. So that's a, great, that's a good point. Yes. Okay. What else would you want to do? So assume you're going you're gonna to take on his, you're going to take on his pain management. So you're going to check in ORS. Do a risk assessment. You can do a risk assessment, and what are some of the risks? What are some options for the risk assessment? Do you guys, you guys use one in your open clinic? Open risk tool. Open risk tool. Yeah. That's my favorite. Yeah. So you can use the open risk tool. It's a it's a it's a short questionnaire completed by the patient. Okay. What else? So you've accessed the physician drug monitoring program. You've done you've done a screening test. What's the last thing you want to that a universal precautions approach would recommend you do before you start prescribing opioids for them? Right. An opioid agreement or a pain contract. That would out again and that would outline his expectations, your and your what your requirements are. Um, and those would be the three steps you would do as part of universal precautions. So let's say you get a urine drug screen on him too, because part of as part of your pain contract, you in your in your practice, you get it, you start off with a urine drug screen for all your patients before you prescribe. So let's kind of go through now some some possibilities here. So kind of going back real quick, um, what what this guy is doing is he's taking uh, 30 milligrams of morphine. Um, every four hours, about five times per day. Okay? So, his immunoassay is positive with an opiate, and his GCMS is positive for morphine. So what does that tell us? He's taking the medicine, right? Good. Let's say his immunoassay was negative for opiate, and his GCMS was negative for morphine. What, it, what would be your next step? What, is this, what does this tell us, and what would be your next step? That's concerning that he's not taking it as he says he is, because he's taking it at clock, so he should be positive. Right. So asking him when the last time he took the dose was. Probably better to ask him when he took the last dose before you get the, the urine drug screen, right? As part of your, your intake, your history, understanding when he took it last, and then getting a urine drug screen. And what are, if, what are some possibilities? Why might he not have morphine in the system? He could be diverting. He's running out, so maybe he's spacing longer. He just moved. He, he's, he's about to run out. Um, maybe his pain has gotten worse, and he's been taking it more often. And he ran out. And because of that, he ran out. Let's say um, he's negative, negative for an opiate, but positive for oxycodone. What does that mean? It's got a strange metabolism. <laughs> so what's clearly not in the system if, he, if his GCMS is uh, positive for, for oxycodone? For morphine. But if, if his GCMS is positive for oxycodone, why is his immunoassay negative for opiate? Right. Because immunoassay doesn't always detect very very well semi-synthetic opioids. So you can theoretically get a positive oxycodone on your GCMS, but negative on your opioid, depending on what the immunoassay specifically tests. So again, at Ohio State, um, they make sure to, to 
specifically test for it as well. But in general, you're in drug treatment, you might miss it. So now let's say, what if it's IO is positive for opioid and cocaine and, and GCMS confirms this? So what does this mean? This is pretty straightforward. What, is, what, what would that mean? He's using cocaine, right? He's using cocaine in addition. So how about if his immunoassay is positive for an opiate and his GCMS shows morphine and hydromorphone? Depends upon the concentration of hydromorphone. What's that? Depends upon the concentration of hydromorphone. So you can see hydromorphone in it? And why is that? Well, I mean, it's metabolite, but I, w I want to know how much hydromorphone is. Is it a trace amount, or is it a large quantity? They'll tell me a little more about the situation. Right. So, exactly. So, hydromorphone is a metabolite of morphine. Um, it's a minor metabolite. And so, exactly, your next step would be then to ask the lab what percentage of, of the, um, is there of the hydromorphone. So let's say there's only hydromorphone. Now what? So hydromorphone is a minor metabolite. It can be about 15%, less than 15% um, in morphine. So if there's only hydromorphone in the GCMS, what does that tell you? Is he taking morphine? He's not taking morphine, right? If it was 10%, yeah, he could be taking morphine and it has a minor metabolite of hydromorphone. That makes sense. All right, last one. Positive opioid, GC um, confirms morphine and this weird thing, 6-monoacetylmorphine, acetylmorphine. Heroin. He's taking heroin. He could be taking the morphine in there. He's probably taking the morphine and the heroin, potentially, right? That's a pretty telltale sign if you get that in your, in your, in your GCMS. And I would say f for all of these, the kind of other an answers always re requires further investigation, right? So for for everything, even you know, even when you have a you have um, a GCMS that's that's negative, um, it requires checking in with your lab, making sure what the cutoff levels are, making sure that you know those cutoff levels because you can order these GCMS depending on your institution where you're from, where, where you're working, with no cutoff level. So basically, if anything pops up they'll give you a positive result. Other ones will have a cutoff level, and if it's below this threshold, will be negative. If it's above, it'll be positive. So all of these kind of, whenever there's any suspicion, it requires further investigation. Talking with your patient, trying to understand what their, what, what, understand their, their medication history, um, talking with the lab. And remember Miss K again, 37-year-old with bipolar one, stage four breast cancer, smokes marijuana, lives with five roommates. Um, She's unable to account for her oxycodone pills when asked. So um, we, based on a universal precautions approach, she might be someone who we need to do a few extra steps for, right? We talked about, based on a universal approach, everyone gets a PDMP, everyone gets a opioid um, treatment agreement. Um, what, would, what, what would be, what are some other things you might do for, for her? She's a patient who, suddenly can't necessarily count for all her pills. What are some other options? Lockbox. What's that? Lockbox. Lockbox, yep. What other things can you do? Educate the patient. 
further education, right, a lockbox, pill counts, right, um, making it a practice to ask her to bring in her oxycodone bottle at, at every visit and counting how many pills and adjusting your prescription based on, on how much. Um, and adjusting her meds. Maybe if, if she's taking you know, a lot of PRNs and maybe increasing her OxyContin right, to re decrease the amount of PRNs she needs to take. For someone who's really high risk, not, not in this case, but someone who's really high risk, Another recommendation would be seeing the patient every week, giving them a really short supply, a really small supply. Seeing giving them 120 pills for the month, giving them 30 pills per week, and having them come back each week. What would be her risk profile based on her ORT? We talked about this. It was kind of, it was like I think it was seven, so it was considered high. What follow-up steps would we do? Is what we just talked about. Case two was Mr. Carson, a 63-year-old multiple myeloma, who took the MS content 30 milligrams every 12 hours and 15 milligrams of morphine um, IR. Um, you've been following for five months, and now you decide, well, you kind of missed the boat, right? But now you're like, well, I should really start doing this, these urine drug screens. Urine drug screens positive for opiate and cocaine. You see is morphine, codeine, and cocaine. So how do we interpret this? Um, interpret this one. What, what, what could this be? So cocaine is cocaine, right? We got that. You expect to see morphine because he's prescribed morphine. But what about this codeine? Yeah, is it a metabolite of morphine? No, it's right. It's not. It's not a metabolite of morphine, but it can be a, an impurity. And so, what would you, you call the you call the um, the testing center? What would you ask him? What would be helpful to see if this is a really a meta this is really an impurity or if he's taking codeine? What could they tell you? They tell you the percentage. Yep. How much coding is in there? Exactly. Great. And this is kind of a, a good case too to kind of think again about in our field, right? This is someone with myeloma with 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 metastatic you know, with bony lesions. You know, even that that kind of explanation I gave you is that the cocaine helps him cope with his disease. Who knows, right? But the point is, he does have a disease, and there could be other psychological depression and coping, you know, poor coping issues that are going on. And that is, those are things we need to address also. And it does become difficult, you know, with, with, in certain communities, certain patients who maybe all their life they've used recreational drugs to cope with just the stress of everyday life, and then they get a malignancy. So they fall back. This, we see this a lot with alcohol, right? So head and neck cancer, especially in that population, if they're using alcohol to cope with, with stress to begin with and they get cancer, and they use it in addition, how do, how do we deal with that? And, and those are some issues to think about. Um, what is your interpretation we talked about? What would be your response to the positive cocaine result? So this is kind of just another thing to think about. Um, I think having a, a, an idea, I think, ahead of time is good. And I think people will have different opinions on, on the cocaine result. If you, if he never signed an opioid contract with you, if you've kind of sprung him, sprung this on him, do you give him another chance? If he goes to, you know, if he sees an addiction specialist, you say, I'll go ahead and continue to prescribe you this. What do you do? Do you fire? You discharge him from your clinic outright? Um, I mean, these are decisions to make. I mean, clearly, um, to think about it. 
So in summary, um, you know, a universal precautions approach is needed for all patients who receive opioids, even though this was, they were developed with chronic non-malignant pain in mind. Um, there's a role in our, in our patient population as well. PDNPs help detect doctor shopping. Um, it's now mandated in many states. But they have benefits, and not just with, with kind of doctor shopping, but also helping to confirm what a patient is taking and when they last um, fill the script. And really important here is that a urine drug screen must be interpreted very carefully because it's, it's more complicated than, than, than it might appear at first. Um, and that's it. Any, any questions? Any, any other comments? Yeah. What percent of clinics are using universal precautions? Like, is it the standard most people do it, or is it a so what yeah, that's a good question so what percentage of clinics are using these standard precautions I um, there are some studies out. I don't have the numbers at the top of my head there was a study um, where they uh, surveyed hospices in, in Virginia um, about what kind of what their what their procedures are and basically do they even have a policy in place on how to think about opioid diversion and risk and things like that I don't remember the numbers off my head but generally not as many as you would like, you know, there weren't, that it's not universal. Um, yeah. Any other comments or questions? Okay, great, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum. <laughs>